Mambo Vipi, what's happening? My name is Aniko Owoko and I am a lover of art, culture and everything African. And here we grant you front row access to your favorite celebrities, creators, the biggest personalities and industry experts. Come with me, you're now a VIP. Welcome to episode 17 of VIP Access Season 3. This is Aniko, obviously, and I'm very happy to be back here. Thank you so much for coming to listen to my podcast every week. I have new episodes every Tuesday. I have fantastic news coming up every other week and even about the coming editions and seasons of this podcast. So today... I'm very excited because I'm celebrating the end and culmination of a beautiful season that presented 16 different artists from Kenya, Tanzania, and South Africa, of course. <laughs> season three, I would say, was really an East meet South kind of situation. And I think one of the things I want to do moving forward is just to make sure I'm bridging the gap and connecting different Africans from different places. And that's how I decided to present you this bonus episode 17. So the person I'm about to interview today is super, super amazing. I've known him for a very long time, but even more importantly, we're coming to you from a beautiful location. We are in Mallorca and this is an island off of Spain. I'm here courtesy of this guest of mine, so I'm sure you're all wondering who this is. Welcome, Biko. What's up? Thank you very much. <laughs> I receive your welcome with a warm, open heart. We oh. are in the Balearic Islands, so if you want to call it Balearia in Spanish, it's summertime, so the temperatures are high, the food is delicious, and the language around us is constantly Spanish. Really wonderful. Yeah. So we're recording this episode during summertime. <laughs> I actually took a break to sip on my champagne. <laughs> <laughs> I should sip mine too. Here we go. Inspiration. <laughs> Happy summer. Happy summer. 2023, this baby. This is coming to you in December, but we're recording it in summer. So bringing you back to Mallorca, summertime, August. It's beautiful here. I'm here with an amazing artist. If you've been listening to my podcast, you know the drill. Before I get into the interview, I always paint a picture of who I'm interviewing, how I know them, and why they're super interesting and you need to get to know more about them. So Steve Biko Otieno Okuogo. Yo, how nailed it. Is an amazing creative. Actually, I call him the vibe curator. And I know Savara is going to kill me for this because Savara also calls himself that. Sorry, Savara, it's my title. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fine. We don't have to have one vibe curator. I mean, I'm a vibe curator myself, but... You are a vibe curator on a different level. Just call me a vibe god. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> vibe god. You are a vibe god. So this oh. guy is a vibe god. Oh, forgive my you ego. You can hear his voice. And <laughs> you can tell this man was once on radio and he's got that broadcast voice. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's one thing. The talking voice. You haven't heard him sing. Or if you have heard him sing, you'll... Hear the vibe of the way he's delivering on his tracks. Wow. I love his song, Catch a Fire. It's beautiful. Wow. And somehow his music will always lift you up. You'll always want to dance. You'll always want to leave your worries behind. I say amen. Leave alone the music. Amen Let's to go that. To style amen and fashion and design. Ooh. This man, 
Biko020. So do this. Go to Biko020.com, right? All right, yeah. And you can get to know about this amazing Kenyan designer who's based in Amsterdam and very, very consciously always bridging cities, you know, Nairobi to Amsterdam. Yeah. He just had his first major show in Amsterdam during the summertime that was a bridge between his inspirations all throughout the world, all the way from Kenya to Europe, you know, all his influences from Nairobi to Mombasa to Kisumu and then to Amsterdam, then bringing them together. This was a really beautiful show. I had the opportunity to be there and witness it myself. It felt like I was at the New York Fashion Week. I'm sure a lot of you are like, okay, she's talking too much. We want to hear Biko. Okay, fine. Fine. Biko O2O. How are you doing? Wow. First of all, I'm go I've got to recover from all the compliments you gave me. <laughs> right now, my ego has left the room and has blown up and is filling this blue sky like thunder. <laughs> I'm doing amazing. I'm doing amazing and I am completely glowing from the fashion show you just mentioned that happened in Amsterdam. It was based on the theme called masculinity. Yes. And uh, this time, I'm uh, enhancing and combining our energies in looking at the man within us mm -hmm. to connect with the man outside us. And it was a powerful story, brought us together in a very evening way and even the line between men and women in terms of dressing. Because when we dress up, we represent something, you know, we show the men in us. When I dress up, of course, I cherish the man in me, but I don't forget the woman in me because I also have a mother, you know. And whether you're a man or a woman, there is a man in you, and that man is your father. And you continue a fathering or mothering with the man in you. So we mm. kind of really kind of scrutinized, revisited, redid, reconstructed, re-represented the image of the man in society today, within and without. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And there was a very powerful little introduction that you gave right before your fashion show. Yeah. What did you say? Do you remember? We talked about freedom of expression. And uh, I revisited my childhood when I was growing up, and we were limited to playing with certain toys or doing certain things. When I grew up, for example, boys weren't allowed to play with dolls, and my dad didn't like the idea. As growing up as a boy, I loved actually playing with dolls, and I dressed up dolls, I made dresses for them, and I enjoyed myself doing it. And now looking back to how this has actually grown and flourished into fully-blown clothing designing, you know, and um, I remember how much I was in love with the human shape or the human body. Dressing up a Barbie is dressing up a... Money queen. There you, there you go. Essence. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But the image of the Barbie was not the image of the African woman I was used to as a child. The Barbie was different. It was taller. It was thinner. It had longer limbs. It had long blonde hair and a thin, skinny face. Yeah. Most African girls had different shapes. Yes. Anyway, a woman is a woman, I guess. <laughs> so it's up to you how you define yourself and how you want to see yourself. Not all of us are Barbies, you know, but they're still women. So that was what the monologue was about, revisiting the limitations of expression as a child then and being told this is the rules of the game. Boys play with cars and football and girls play with dolls. I found the line more in the middle. I found pleasure and I found joy in actually dressing and making clothes for dolls. As a young man, I'm being told that that was not the way to go. Already kind of raised an eyebrow, but I didn't stop. Mm. <laughs> I didn't stop. But it's funny because that's life and it continues like you always become an adult or go somewhere in the world and someone will have an opinion about your shirt or your trouser or your dress, you know, always there's opinion on how women should dress and how men should dress. And 
some women and men or individuals, let me call them that, love to express themselves via fashion. And fashion is genderless and limitless. I like that. The genderlessness and limitlessness of fashion. That is an uh, amazing way of seeing things. And actually, you are the middle ground, the person where you find your own niche and you find your own place and find your own comfort zone where you actually feel really great about your own body, mm. what works with you, and it's genderless and limitless. I really like what you said. Yeah, that feels really great. I should think about it like that. The fashion is genderless and limitless. But what happens around the world? We genderfy it yeah. and we limit it. We put people yes. in boxes. We decide men should wear this, women should wear that. And women shouldn't wear short skirts, and men shouldn't wear this, and who should wear that? All the time, even some specific type of jobs. I'm lucky not to be in those spaces. Obviously, white-collar jobs, you have to dress a certain way. And if you, I don't know, wear a T-shirt or jeans, then it's not acceptable. But that doesn't take away from the professional. It doesn't take away from the person. You know, there's a puzzle that I'm um, saying, you can call it. The dress makes the man, or does the man make the dress? I've thought about it for a long time, and I'm like, hey, you can dress up for the occasion, right? Mm. Whenever you dress up, you feel like you actually gear up, you armor up, you change, you become the person you want to become then with that outfit you're wearing. Mm. When you dress up, you're looking for something or you're telling something constantly. Mm. It's always a journey or a statement or a confirmation of something that you have in you or you're trying to make contact with mm. at the end of the day. You know, the dress does make the man or does the man make the dress? You decide. We leave that question to you to decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And so, Biko, just going back to your, you know, history, growing up, inspirations, I know they come way back from your days in Kisumu and also in Mombasa. And Nairobi. And Nairobi as yeah. well. So, where are we going to start? Because I would like to know about your upbringing in Mombasa, in Kisumu, and also, how Nairobi influenced you? I'll be honest with you. The city that made the most impact in my uh, sense and decision and reverence for fashion and clothing mm -hmm. is Nairobi. My mother was a, a clothing curator. She would go and buy second-hand clothes and then sell them to people who bought camera. And camera is a term used to define second-hand clothing that hadn't been worn or wasn't that worn out, mm -hmm. you know? And she was the pro at choosing them. I was her KYM. You know, Kijana Omkono. I'd carry all the heavy bags. We'd go to Kikomba Market like as early as 5 a.m. so as 4.30. And we had mud almost up to our ankles wearing gumboots. And then we would choose the best cotton shirts. And uh, a funny thing is, there was a brand called Van Hussein. Mm. It was one of the best shirt brands that ever exist on this planet. And so your job, your personal job for your own self, your personal endeavor was to pick these specific shirts for yourself. My mom was the curator, so I went with her to curate the shirts. She'd pick them mm. and help her wash them, iron them. She'd show and explain to me why these shirts were nice. They were 100% cotton. They were the most beautiful prints. And they were really like high-end fabrics. So she had the eye of choosing the best fabrics. Mm. And now she would sell them to... Men who had high-end jobs, like banking, lawyers, engineers, they had no time to go shopping. And in that time, the fashion industry in Kenya was almost not alive because we had decons. Mm. Go shop at decons and then walk on the street and see how you feel. Decons made uniform for people who actually worked at factories and school uniform. Mm. For you to find actually something nice to wear, either you had to pay like breakneck prices to go and shop in Westlands, or you humble yourself and go buy second-hand clothing. Mm. And the masses in Kenya bought second-hand clothing. So my mom was a bridge between high-end people and the second-hand market. 
And I told you she made a fortune because whenever we brought shirts to like a bank or a place that people would buy them, she'd bring them to places. She never had a shop. We'd actually go to people and bring them to their homes. And they would be all sold in one day. The one day we go out and all the 40, 50, 60, 70 shirts were all gone. We'll have to go buy them again. Yes. Up to 60 shirts gone. In Sometimes even a hundred. We see five people. If the five take 10, 10, 8, 8, uh, 21, and the one that expensive, you know? And they were really nice things. And the brand called Fanhauser came from Holland. And now I live in Holland. What a mm. crazy coincidence. Wow. Yeah, we call it Van Hussein. They call it Fanhauser. Wow. And at that time, it wasn't even in your mind that I was a child. That's going to be my home. I was vibing my mom. I was, I was a child. I was vibing with my mom. And I, would, I remember at some points I would be apprehensive because I was tired. I didn't want to go. I didn't feel like it. But my mom had the most soft, motivating way to get me to go with her. We were BFFs, you know, and her taste was impeccable. The stuff she chose was really, really pretty. Mm. That is where I got the knack for choosing fabrics and also the, the desire to dress people up. The men she dressed up, they were in different shapes and sizes. Mm. Tall, short, thin, fat, foreign, white, like mm. name it. And they were all very happy that whenever she came, they had a smile from ear to ear. And they looked great in the outfits. And their wives were wondering, like, where do you find this stuff? Because we go to markets, we go to camera stores, but we don't find stuff as nice as you bring, <laughs> you know? So it was always a thing like, oh, Mabiko is coming. Whoa, it's on. I better have money because <laughs> it's on. How old were you then? I, I was a child. I think I was eight, maybe nine, ten. Wow. Yeah. Eight, nine, ten. Wow. In so you loved that. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed going to the market. And the smell of secondhand clothes. When they open the bill, yeah. you know, like poop, the bill busts. Yeah, and then yeah. like the, already like you see prints and colors like that. And it was a scaramanga because mm. people would fight for the items. There were other people buying. Mm. So you just had to like grab and put them in your corner and then slowly go through the ones you're taking and you want to keep. Mm. Yeah. That was where my love of fashion was born. The, the love for dressing people, the love for choosing, the love for caring for clothes, caring for fabrics, for doing things, changing things, and making new stuff. But then you end up later on in life when we actually met, when I actually met you, you were working at Capital FM. Yeah. You ended up in the broadcast profession. How yeah. did you end up there? I mean, it's not a surprise you ended up there. Your voice. This voice. Thank you, thank you. I, I collect compliments. I'm taking this is another. This is like the twentieth you've given to me. Yeah. I mean, in my compliment crate, and I feel I, so I great. Always, I always say this to Ninka, your partner, who we're going to talk about. I always say that you are blessed with that voice for nighttime radio. Oh boy. Or a psychologist, which you actually are, or a therapist, and you are a therapist. Like those, if, those if, are all if, my colors. If you call somebody on the phone and say it's gonna be alright, they'll just be oh, like, they'll feel okay, alright. Yeah, see. yeah. Because yeah. it will be fine. <laughs> Welcome to the chameleon in my soul or in my psyche. I think when it comes to life, maybe sometimes I live like a chameleon. Actually, I do live like a chameleon. You know, all these colors they change and they vibe and they come from inside me. Mm. Radio or media started when I was a very young child. I love poetry and music when I was uh, in primary school. I went to Mbita Point International School then. It was a place in Mbita, an international center for physiology and ecology, Mbita Point Field Station. My dad uh, was the financial administrator there, or director, and was full of scientists who came from abroad who did insect research about agriculture in Kenya and malaria as well. In this whole complex, there are people from different backgrounds, Nigeria, Ghana, America, 
I mean, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia, the whole world was re- represented there in that environment. Mm. At school, we had a lot of poetry in foreign languages, in French, I remember, mm-hmm. and English, Swahili, and also German. And uh, when I was young, my French was pretty good, and I did a lot of French poetry and English and Swahili poetry. So I was always in front of people presenting, talking, speaking, and I got good feedback. At some point, I think in high school, you know, on Jiko, I represented... Wait, uh, you are in Onjiko High? I went to Onjiko High. Oh my God, my father was a headmaster there. He told that before to me. Yeah. And he must have been a headmaster. In the days of my dad, actually, no, my dad is as old as your dad. So let's say, before I joined Onjiko, he yeah. must have been the headmaster. But yes. that's a nice common story. Yeah, very much. And my memory, when I was young, because my father passed away when I was nine, yeah. I have memories of us leaving more like traveling to Onjiko. Arriving, it was so hot and dusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pure box ninety one ahead. Yes. Yeah, Onjiko boys. Ahead. Wow. So you went to Onjiko. That was my school, and I took Onjiko to the nationals every year with poetry and music. You took yeah. Onjiko. I did solo pieces. I love that. I did public speaking, and I went to nationals, and I was on the top three the nationals. I even did a point for the president. I remember, shook his hand. I thought I woke up Which with the one, president M1, one. please, M1 himself, Kirungu. So, <laughs> and Kirungu himself told me, Endelea, if you, if you, this was Endelea, oh, fantastic. So if the president himself tells you to continue like that, who are you to stop? So I finished high school. I went straight to look for a job <laughs> to, at Baraka FM. And uh, I was talking in the reception. And then the programs director was passing, going to the toilet. And I was trying to kind of vibe the receptionist, like, you know, here, I'm coming to look for a job. Or, and she had my voice. She's like, who are you? I said, like, I'm Steve. You have a nice voice. Sit down. I'll do a voice test for you in a moment. Just wait. I'm coming. I was like, what? The receptionist couldn't believe. It's like, the boss, Peter, and hears me talking and says, mm. you sit, we'll do a voice test in a moment because we're looking for someone. And that's how I ended up in Japanese show. Japanese was doing Safiri Hewani in the afternoon, and I did hang out with the action A. So I would go around and collect information about restaurants, bars, nightclubs, like, Hanging out where the action is. I'd look for action, put it in a box, and present it. So Fridays, Thursdays, I would tell people where to go and what to do with them. Another thing we have in common is Japani, because that is the first person who trained me in my professional career as a broadcaster on radio. Yeah. And same as you. I stood in front of a microphone for the first time ever in my life to record or present anything with the guidance of Japani. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was still young and I, I wasn't sure what I'm doing. I was like, oh God, how is this going to be? How many people are listening? And then what happens at some point, they press the on-air button. You know when, when the button goes on, like on-air? And, and then, then and the door, it shows the just rest. don't go in. And then like, okay, you're looking at the pool. Now you have to swim. Now you have to swim. And Japani was so good at what he did. He had the gab, he had the vocabulary, he had the Kiswahili, he had the voice, he had the poesy, he had the experience, he had the training, and he had the following. People actually listened to him. Mm. He had fans, you know? So hearing Japani communicate to people, deliver his thing, I was like borrowing leaves every single day. I would mm. learn something, I would learn something, I would learn something, I would learn something. And it grew and grew and grew and grew. And I did a whole round, man. I'm up for Pulse FM in Mombasa. I worked for the Christian station in Nairobi, Family Radio. The height of my career was in Capital FM, doing Urban Nights with Peter Mushai after I just left the UK and came back to Kenya. And then I had such a good time at Homeboys Radio at Uptown, because they owned Uptown Radio 91.1 FM, mm. and we were doing reggae and dancehall exclusive. That is when my career actually blew up into like something really cool, because I had all the public transport in Nairobi in the afternoon tuning to Uptown Afternoon, reggae and dancehall. 
like a religion. That was the bomb. That was the bomb. That was the bomb. Nairobi was grooving. Was grooving to us. Four days a week, every afternoon. Yeah, it was very exciting. Radio history. And how did you end up in Amsterdam? How did you settle in Amsterdam? I know you had a couple of years where you were, you know, in different areas and countries in Europe and, you know, Dubai as well. So at what point do you decide, I'm going to leave Kenya and go to Europe or I'm going to go to Dubai? At what point did you start to think of getting out of Kenya and why? I remember when I was uh, working for Baraka FM, I was working with uh, a lot of people from the UK mm-hmm. and America. And uh, first of all, I wanted to actually go to university and actually study and become a professional at something mm. but uh, i didn't have the money to do it and the kind of salary i was earning couldn't really afford to pay university mm. fees um, so you got onto your broadcast career based on your talent raw talent purely raw talent i was untrained i was raw talented i came from the drama club in high school to the fm station in mombasa I did the hard graft of actually marketing and selling the station to understand what it means to actually sell and buy and use airspace. Mm. So when I was meeting clients and doing marketing and sales and trying to get clients to advertise their products on the radio, I understood the essence and effect and the intention of the radio more and more. The element of it being the theater of the mind, where you actually wake up the mind by listening. Because the person listening is not watching, they're listening. Mm. But you want to reach emotion you want to touch them somewhere that they need to be touched yeah and that's what i did going to talk to clients about selling i'd listen to what they're making what product they have and then i'd find a way to bridge the gap between what they're doing and what we're doing how Mm. to put that on a platform to reach the people listening Mm. and to reach the right person so they'd actually hear the right information and to stay with them and make them buy the product Mm. and my first product was food seal it was like a anti-fungal food powder you know, Mombasa is hot, right? Mm. So if you're wearing shoes, you sweat. And you know what happens when you sweat on your shoes? They don't smell very friendly anymore. Mm-mm. So this antifungal food powder from Futsil was the best because if you add it to your shoes in the morning, you take your shoes in the evening and they will be as fresh as ever. You're such a great marketer. You're already selling me that Dennis from... <laughs> <laughs> Futsil, pay me, send me a check, <laughs> please. I'm still marketing your product now, so please send me a check. Send me a check. Send me a check. So you're telling me about meeting all these people who are from the UK and remembering that you had a dream to go to university, but unfortunately you hadn't at that point because of financial constraints. Yeah, so I found a way but wasn't uh, directly going to uni or directly going to work because I, was, I wasn't an expert who could be hired and paid 8,000 euros and, and they have to prove nobody course. else in Europe can do the job apart of from course, you. Of course, I ended up traveling as a voluntary worker via an organization called Liabi. Mm-hmm. It's a place where students go to actually be accommodated when they go to the UK to start a life. Mm-hmm. So they go, they get accommodation, they get food, they get guidance, they get spoken to, and when they find their own wings, they get to the big city and move on. Mm-hmm. But they pay for the rooms, so a student okay. hostel. So I applied for a job there. It was only for one year. They accepted me. They even paid my air ticket. Really? Yes, they did. You wouldn't believe it. They did. Because, wow. I, I mean, I was earning 3,000 shillings at Baraka FM. 3K. 3,000 shillings? Yes, 3,000 shillings as a marketing. Per month? Yes, as a marketing rep. Because I couldn't pay an air ticket then like that. And the show I was doing, I was still, I was still like a new starter. I was learning. So I wasn't being paid like a lot of money for it. They'll give me a chance to actually express my talent. So there you go. I had 3K a month and uh, I couldn't pay an etiquette with it. I don't know how, man, 
I think it was a miracle. Let me just tell you the truth. I believe in miracles. I believe in that in this world, if you really want something, and if you go out there to get it, somehow the world spins around to meet you halfway somewhere when you really kind of give it your all and try and just keep pushing and keep being consistent. Because, I mean, how Liabi agreed to pay my ticket and how I ended up traveling, for me, honestly, I find it as a miracle. But I did. It worked out. And I went to the UK for a year, and that's when my eyes opened to this European dream. Then what? I was in shock how uh, the rest of the world is efficient. I mean, I was in London. Imagine coming from, I was living in Bamburi, mm. working in Canon Towers in Mombasa, taking my matatu humbly from mm. Himbeni to Canon Towers on the way to mm. Docks, you know? That was my image of the world then. That was my big world. Of course, I had listeners on radio, and it was beautiful. But being teleported almost to London, it felt like, mm. on Kensington High Street, Lexham Gardens. That's one of the most expensive boroughs in London. Um, only the, the, the foyer of a house was the size of the house I lived with my whole family then. So the shock and awe I had to kind of withstand and the realization of like, oh my goodness, people actually live like this. Life can be like this. This is Europe. I was ruined in terms of if I ever go back to Kenya, I don't think I want to go back to the life I was living. And I was Kind of also woken up to the idea that, uh, my God, life can't be this great. You can change things. You can be efficient. You can actually be great. There can be infrastructure. Things can actually function. There's no country in the world where things work 100%. Let's not be over-optimistic um, about the European efficiency. But I'm going to be a bit pessimistic. because I'm always too optimistic and I always give 100%. Uh, let's just be sober and say, Europe has an 85% proficiency. You know, there's a 15% that can be better, but I give them 85 in terms of efficiency, transport, water, you know, economy, finance, healthcare, 85. And that's quite a high, high, high percentage. Because if I see a place like Nairobi, if I had to give a percentage of actually how things function, when I grew up at, say, 30, over 15, the roads were Horrible. There were massive portfolios. Driving from Nairobi to Mombasa was like committing suicide or destroying your car. Now there are highways, there are roads, there are everything, they're walking, the flyovers, trying to work on traffic jams, you know, our economy is improving. We are not, no longer a third world country. We are actually a fast developing country. Mm. But I still put it on 55. There's a serious at least 30% head start that Europe has had, of course, because they are for the sake of understanding, this called a first world country because they're ahead of the game in many ways. But that's just the painful truth. Mm. It's like um, we have a long way to go. But you felt strongly that you would want to carve the next chapter of your life in Europe. Yeah, I had dreams. And I saw that with this efficiency and infrastructure, it's possibly possible to try and work my dreams out. I wanted to be an artist, I wanted to design clothes, I wanted to make music, I wanted to study. But as we went along, I realized, okay, okay, this is efficient, it's wonderful, it's organized, but it's not going to be easy to achieve anything in this place where everybody achieves everything. Europe is a country where inventing something new, huh, good luck. Because most things have been done at a very high scale or level. So for you to actually hack it in Europe, you have to do it that well for you to be able to even be heard or seen or make any noise. So it was like a double wake-up call. It was like, fine. I could actually do what I need to do here, go to school, study, and, and be creative and stuff. But I had to up my game to the level of what they do here 
for them to even notice that I'm doing anything. Mm. Yeah. So just humbling myself for going to school and getting a degree, going to uni. I went to Leiden University in the Netherlands. I did a psychology degree and then did a master's and did some specialty courses. So I'm now a psychologist, a therapist. And with the music, I met like uh, really great guys from Amsterdam and Harlem who um, um, work with a label called I and I. But they're actually full session musicians who have their own careers outside the label and they actually just work with the label or do the label to have something to do with themselves whilst they're not doing those big time things outside, yeah. big time gigs. So it was very humbling to meet these guys who have achieved a lot, like from Gallo Street and they're such great jazz musicians. But when they play, you feel like the world is ending. They're, they're powerful. It's like so, so, so great and so elevating to sit with them in the studio and try to kind of create or make something, or actually perform with them, mm. you know, with one of them. Because I work with one of them now to do a show together. We have a trilogy, sometimes a quadrilogy. Limba Music, Ribier, me, Misha. It's four of us. But Ribier comes from Gano Street. And Lima is an independent artist who has 60,000 listeners on Spotify right now, worldwide. So, you know, I think I had like this month 2,000 listeners. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you see the gap between me and the guys <laughs> I'm working with and the, the kind of, yeah, dream I'm trying to achieve yeah. or reach. So can we speak about the fashion? Biko O2O Amsterdam. Biko O2O. Why that name? Biko is my middle name. I'm Steve Biko Tienokuogo. My parents named me after the famous Steven Bantu Biko, who wrote, mm-hmm. I write what I like. I read his book when I was nine and I was crying. I didn't understand why I was crying, but I was crying. And the words were very big, but it was like, it was so bold talking. You know, I felt like someone was telling me off, you know, like, why are you doing this? And why should this be this way? And why should that be that way? I felt told off completely about my sense of meager existence and not wanting to fight for my own freedom, mm. you know. And Otuwoi is the code of Amsterdam, the city that I live in. And guess what? It's also the code of Nairobi. I wasn't going to mention that, but since you said it, Nairobi is my city. Yeah. And you know me, I'm connecting Nairobi and Amsterdam in a big way. Yes. So let's just say then it connects Nairobi wow. and Amsterdam in a very That's seamless a way. Coincidence. Yeah, yeah. O2 is oxygen. It's kind of like you need that to live, to mm. breathe. And I think fashion for me is a lifestyle. I cannot live or breathe without style. I need to engage, indulge, involve myself, touch. Mm. I'm always dressing up for nothing or for something. Mm. So let's just say the O2O is a connection with my cities, mm. Nairobi and Amsterdam, and I'm Biko. So it's Biko in Amsterdam and Nairobi, basically. And you studied fashion at the Amsterdam Fashion Academy. Yeah. How was that experience? It was fantastic. It was fantastic, but also daunting. Because when I came to Amsterdam Fashion Academy, I was very stubborn. I had my own ideas, and I wanted to execute them my own way. But I had never really learned how to make clothing, the old-fashioned, straightforward way. It is an insanely flipping amount of geometry. The amount of mathematics in clothemaking is insane. Really? Yes. You measure, you cut, you draw, you do calves. You actually adorn the human body with a garment. You see, the shape of a woman and the shape of a man are different. Right now, in the collection of masculinity, I made garments for both men and women. So making something that flatters a man and a woman is actually finding harmony between the human and the male body. Women are cavillaceous. Men are muscular. Finding the middle line is like geometry and mathematics mm. at a very high level. I was in the Fashion Academy, changed my approach from being this wild, crazy, want to achieve quickly what I want to make, to going back to recalibrating, thinking, calculating, measuring, and contemplating. My teachers, man, they were younger women. They were much younger than me. They were very pretty. 
they were very impatient and they were very pushy and they would not take excuses. Once you were in class, behind the sewing machine, they want you to make a top that looks like what's on the diagram or you'll make that top. Trust me. The first week was hard. I had to kind of like just really swallow my pride and not try to do my own thing and listen. I love instruction, but I also hate instructions. <laughs> so I have to kind of find a middle ground. Yeah. But as soon as I kind of got the, the knack and the gist of making garments and what they were trying to kind of ingrain in me, I'm ever so thankful to them until today. They changed my approach and my thinking towards the, the creation of apparel. Hmm. Yeah. So since, you know, Fashion Academy, you know, since setting up Biko O2O, how has it been? It's been hard. And uh, it brought out all my insecurities in one go. Mm. Like, all my insecurities came out at some point. Like, all of them. Because when you make clothes, you make clothes that you like. You paint the world through your eyes, you know? If I were to dress a woman or a man, it's almost like I impose my taste on you, oh. on one hand. And on the other hand is, my biggest inspiration comes from watching people. So as much as I imposed my taste on them, actually, I borrow their taste. Mm. Mix it with what I know and what I see in other people mm. and then represent it to them in an inclusive way. It's like, hey, I saw you wear this, but I added this to it and made it look like this. I hope you like it. And also, it's my story. It's me telling mm. the story of where I come from because I'm an African man from an African continent in an African context with an African psyche, an African way of approaching how mm. to dress. You know, I have memories of my mom wear certain things, for example, and they have stuck with me for a long time. Mm. The other day you were wearing a boo-boo from Nigeria. Mm. I even never knew what a boo-boo was until I saw my mommy in a boo-boo and I had them talk about it on Agbada, and for example. And then you saw my boo-boo and he took you back to your Sheep. memories. To my childhood. Yeah, you told me yeah. that. Yeah, so that's the fashion part. And is this why then you make a lot of unique pieces and one-off pieces? And how sustainable is that? I have to ask you. Fashion is not sustainable. <laughs> Period. I find it a very crazy thing to say because fashion is impatient, it's quick, it's fast, mm. it changes, it tries to keep up with our anxieties as people in this world, first mm. of all. We dress up to represent something, we dress up to keep up with something, we dress up to tell something, we dress up to share something, and sometimes we dress up to hide something. Mm. You know, some people say, like, I don't like my leg, I don't like my this, I want to show this more and hide this more. And it's a constant thing. And as much as we think that we have a grip on it, and can control it and have it in our hands, we don't. Mm. We chase it. We keep up with it. And sometimes we get tired. And that makes it not easy to sustain because if you keep changing something and taking something new, mm. which makes you keep wanting something different from what you yeah. have. Yeah, yeah. And that is a very unsustainable way of thinking or living because you use more, you consume more, yeah. you, you waste more that way, you know? So... Yes, we can make it sustainable by using organic fabrics, dyeing in friendly ways, using things in smaller amounts, and also not overproducing. Even using technology for the patterning. There you go, there you go. I'm not using cheap slave labor or abusing other people for us to live a lavish life. The brands who sell things for throwaway prizes literally abuse other people in locked rooms in dark, dingy corners of the world to produce those things. Mm. That's the sad story behind it. That cheap garment you buy for one euro, someone else had to make it. It costs them their freedom even sometimes, you know? Mm. So, yeah, it, this is a big topic. And if you want to talk about sustainability and fashion, it is great to realize that it is something difficult to control. Mm. But if we come to the awareness of realizing that our anxiety to change quickly mm. and get things quickly and keep up with fashion is the poison that makes it go that direction, we might just change ourselves. Mm. 
coming from me, you see my wardrobe, it's hypocritical because I have a lot of clothes. I stopped shopping, so I made them myself. <laughs> <laughs> Only buy the necessary basics. Yeah. I'm lying, I shop, I shop, I'm lying, I shop. You have a lot of clothes, but you're still shopping. Uh, when I can't help myself, I do. Because you, you only need ones. I can help myself. Yeah. But in terms of Biko O2O, do you see that um, this kind of style that you really, and precedence that you really set for yourself, do you see this as how you want to continue running this brand? Like having different themes and different collections that represent a certain thought in time. This approach of doing small numbers for me is the medicine towards the wastefulness of the fashion industry. I don't make huge volumes of things. I have some pieces that are made out of recycled fabrics. For example, I have a skirt that I made out of a fabric that used to be a cotton in um, Reka's house when she was younger, you know? So let's just say that's how I approach it. I work with everything I can find, when I can find it, how I can find it. From new fabrics to old things. I recycle as much as possible and I do small volumes. Small volumes keep me small, keep me niche. That means I can never make big money. I can never make big profits. I also cannot not charge breakneck prices of what I'm making. Mm. I have to kind of keep the prices kind of approachable and normal. Mm. And they're expensive. But the strength in the brand is the few pieces. Mm. People buy exclusivity. When you have something from me, it's probably one of the few 5, 10, 15 pieces and a different variation. So that's the strength in it. And if that continues, I think, if we make little and use little and consume it all, possibly we will stop ruining our planet if we consume what we make and don't throw it all away and dump it and if we actually reuse stuff that we've kind of had before and if we can actually cure the anxiety of wanting to have what is now yeah all the time like i have to have what is now like i have to look like everybody else like i have to be in fashion yeah it's difficult then and that is sustainable fashion in your definition well i'm a designer and I want to keep up with what is going on. So yeah. don't get me wrong. I will make something that is actually current. That's today. It's up to you to decide how much of it you want to buy and what you want to do. Because as a house, we have to keep producing. We have to keep telling the story. And my yeah. story has to be current, you know, and effective and relevant. So I can't close my eyes to what's going on today. But I have to also keep my eyes open to the effect it has on now a long time. So it's basically you're saying you have to be conscious and, and the current. essence of sustainability as yeah. much as you'd like to be current and that as much as you keep it updated. Yeah, making new things all the time is not conscious, but I think limiting and being aware of our controlling and including old stuff mm. in a way that is, keeps becoming new is conscious. Okay. Yeah. Psychology. How did you end up becoming a psychologist or is that also something you had wanted to do? I think I'm going to go back and give credit to the people who deserve the credit the most. I know. I think the mother of my wife was ill when I moved to the Netherlands. She had breast cancer and um, was a very stylish woman. Let's just say she is because she still lives among us and with us. She passed away, unfortunately. She looked amazing. And she had a lot of vintage, beautiful fashion. You go, all the new stuff. But yeah. back to psychology, she was sitting in her bed. I love languages, you know. And I love English a lot. So when I came to Holland, I thought, like, as a broadcast media person, I mean, what would I add to my repertoire that would still be relevant later if I ever wanted to go back to media? I thought, like, polishing and enhancing your language skills would not be a bad approach. Mm. How about learning English more and actually becoming an English teacher, professor? And she sat in her bed. She was having a little cup of tea with a nicely done hair and a wonderful lipstick. I said, no, you're not going to be a teacher because if you become a teacher, you will have a meager salary 
you will have difficult kids to teach. You'll be frustrated and life will be hard. She and said that. Yes. And I thought like, huh? A few years later when I met teachers, they confessed the same, same story. They have a meager salary. They work themselves almost to death and they're just generally not happy. And I thought like, that was one of the things that made me choose psychology. She gave me the right advice. The other thing she said, I'm good with people. I love people. I love talking to people. I love hearing people's stories. How about if I had those stories and actually could do something useful with them? That also gave me a, like a, a step into the game, generally. And um, coming from media, you know, I mean, interviewing people is something that once you've done it a few times and had stories, you never stop. Yeah. It becomes like a part of you, like you're a part of your existence. Mm-hmm. When you go somewhere, your curiosity starts lighting up mm-hmm. and you ask those critical questions for you to understand that problem in a very involved, intricate, inside way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the first time I ever actually sat with a client, a psychologist across a table and had that conversation. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. The coolest thing is people tell me the truth. The absolute, naked, ugly truth about life. I would never want to stop being a therapist because seeing human beings in the most vulnerable is the most beautiful, I think. Mm. And psychology also brings together everything I do in a very beautiful way because there's always the mind behind the mind behind the mind. When you listen to music, your emotions get affected. Mm. Lyrics say something to you. When you buy fashion, when you look at fashion, something happens to you, like it speaks to you. It calls to something in you that already exists. Mm. It only brings it out, actually. So as psychologists, when I'm making a garment, when I'm thinking, when I'm doing an outfit, I'm like, what will this person think? What will they feel when they see mm. this? What am I saying to them by putting this together? Like, where is this going? What will this do to me and to them and to the world? What will I achieve? For, for example, the masculinity, I thought, like, what will this do to men, for men to see and hear themselves wearing something the same as women. I did not grow up thinking men and women were equal. When I grew up, men were powerful, they beat everyone to silence, and they ran the show. Women took care of children, and women took care of the things. Women ran the world, but men called the shots. And it was almost like you couldn't actually question a man's authority. These days, I think people take responsibility for their own actions. Yeah. You know? So the whole idea of like leveling the playground and putting the man and the woman in the same garment for me tells the world that, hey, could it be that these two beings are the same? Yeah. Could it be? Could it be? So this is a very interesting part of this conversation, which means your vision, your belief, your intention many times overlap in the different things that you do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm true to myself, I think. I tell what I believe. I tell what I know and what I believe. And sometimes I tell things that I don't even know I'm telling until someone else sees or hears what I'm saying and then they make a comment. I'm like, oh, that is a statement within the statement within the statement. Yeah. Yeah. And now that you've been living in Amsterdam, you're working in a different continent, how long has that been? Are you happy? Let's go back to the beginning, I think. I left the country uh, in 2002, maybe. And it's been off and on, in, out, in, out, in, out. I've spent a good... Eight years in the UK and now almost 12 in Amsterdam. I've been abroad for over 22 years, maybe. Usually I magnify the years. My wife is more accurate. But let's just say, I'm a European man. I became a man in London. As much as I'm Kenyan and I'm a Luo man from Awasi, you know, my mom comes from Alego, my dad is from Awasi. As much as I'm a River Lake Nilot, <laughs> I'm a European. I have found ground in this continent and uh, a space to have a voice 
I have a family, I have friends, I have people I'm connected to. My dreams are growing like flowers in a garden slowly, you know, I keep watering them. I think the most attractive thing that I have now with me is the perfect partnerships, like with the record label, with the fashion, everybody involved. It's been years and years of convincing, talking, speaking, selling the idea, presenting the vision. But um, this year, the stars aligned. If you can look at it that way, from an astrology perspective, it's like the stars aligned. And every time I meet people and I talk to them about the brand or the music, they want to join and they want to see if they could add something to it. So this is the first time in my life where when I meet people within the continent, they're like, oh, what could I do to add to it? Mm. Or could I add something? Or could I give you something? Or could I bring in something? Mm. Or how could we connect to make it work? That is a beautiful question to ask someone who's trying to achieve something new. Mm. How could we connect to make it work? That is the question I keep being asked by people when I meet them these days. Mm. And that has really grounded me in Europe because I have connected with people to be able to achieve my dreams. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like a happy man. Happiness is uh, in the eyes of the beholder, just like beauty. I made that the saying up doesn't exist. I think it adds up. Happiness is the eye of the beholder. What makes you happy? Possibly doesn't make me happy. But to confirm your statement, am I happy? I am tempted to say yes. Tempted? Why can't you just say yes? Okay, fine. <laughs> fine. I'm talking to a woman. Come you on. want clarity? Yes, Look at the view outside. <laughs> How would you not be happy just being here? Let me describe my view right now. <laughs> At this moment in time, I see beautiful mountains. And in the silhouette, there are beautiful buildings that have like an old Roman Arabic style. Yes. There's no mega high rises here. Everything is just just below the mountains. Mm. The sky is beautiful and blue. The sea is beckoning. And the sound of the water and the olive trees around me and the temperature. And of course, your company. Hey. And the moon in the evening. Okay. Oh my We're in paradise. We're in paradise. It's super big, super round, and so orange. I was born at night. The moon is my fate. The red thing. Me and the moon vibe. Wow. I've really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Like just discovering this person and getting to hear his stories about how fashion has followed him and influenced him from a young age, how he always loved to be a broadcaster and to speak to people and how you ended up taking all these things that were your influences and passions and hobbies and things you love to do, how you ended up chasing them to a point that they became a profession and how you managed to be a designer, a musician, a father, a stylist, a psychology, all of that in one is really phenomenal. So receive your flowers. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I receive them with open it? arms. I think I found... Because it's a lot, it's a lot. I think I found the mantra for existence. Okay. Like the essence of what collects everything together in me and, and makes it what it is. I think it's, it's essentially just being genuine and being true to myself. And not being afraid to express what I think or feel and partnering with people. It's like the best things I've ever achieved in my life come from perfect partnerships. I have never done anything on my own like a mountain and shown and then went up and thought like, I achieved it, look, me, I'm so great. But the greatest things I've ever achieved, I did them through working with people in the best way possible. Mm. 
And talking of perfect partnerships, I think another thing we definitely share in common is Ninka, who's a very special person in my life and your life too. And I met Ninka a long time ago, just when we were starting out with Saudi Soul. Those who heard of Saudi Soul's first manager or the first person who discovered them is Ninka Nauta. She's an amazing woman and individual from Amsterdam. And the moment she met Saudi Soul and I met her, like everything changed. And, you know, that's the reason why Saudi Soul is, they are who they are today because we had somebody who was trustworthy, somebody who was a visionary, someone who was very supportive and hardworking. So I think a lot of us learned a lot of those things that you need to do for the long term, you know, from her. And this ended up being your partner and wife. So how is it like, you know, being with Ninka and just having such a strong individual as your partner? Difficult and easy because a strong person next to you means you have to actually handle the strength. And that can be difficult because I'm also a very decided person. I can have fixed ideas, but we've been together for more than 10 years. Mm. And everything I've achieved or that she has achieved has come from the perfect partnership that we have had. We have learned a lot about each other as individuals, separately and together. Mm. You know, we know how to co completely trigger each other and make each other go completely crazy. <laughs> and we know how to make each other zen, you know, and, and kind of like achieve what we need to do. It's been amazing. And it's been challenging. And from the challenges, I have grown quite a bit. And she has as well. I hope at least. I'm speaking on her behalf. <laughs> but uh, I'm not the same person I was when I met her more than 10 years ago, you know. And she's not the same person she was when she met me more than Aww. 10 years ago. And in those 10 years, we all have children. We have a family. We have a dog. And we have a home. And uh, we've combined our families, you know, and in law. You have and your stuff. African relatives. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> She can handle them. She can handle them. I don't know many Europeans who can actually handle the African Africanness. <laughs> she can. The she can. Always passing by Amsterdam and uh, Mallorca. Do you know I found her in Kenya? I found the Inca in Kenya. I was in Europe for a long time, and I was looking for someone to uh, spend the rest of my life with. And uh, you I were met looking people. for someone to spend your life with. I wanted to spend. Wow. I, I wanted someone, and when I was there, I met people, but I never really met someone who had an effect on me like Ninka. And I found her in Kenya. So when I found her there, I, first of all, I thought, what are you doing here? What are you, you come from an efficient continent. What do you want here? She was very happy there. She was there. Because you guys started dating in Kenya. I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I met her in Kenya. I had given up on Europe. I was tired of, tired of the UK. I said, I'm going back to Kenya to start a life. And I'm going to stay there this time. And I won't leave again. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> God is laughing at <laughs> That is God laughing at your plans. <laughs> The last lesson is never say never. Yeah. Never say never. Never yeah. say never because you don't know. Never say never. But I, I have the perfect partner for me. She's my medication. Okay, so before we wrap this interview, this man is so phenomenal. How many languages do you speak? How many? Tell us. I will start with the most important one, Luo. That's my uh, mother tongue. Both my parents are Luo, so hey, I'm proud of that language. My Kui was much better when I was growing up. Now I don't use it, so just say it's like cold word, cold word. I'm going to test your Kikuyu. Hey, I, I also understand you speak, but not so. You're from Molo, so I'm in trouble now. So I'm, okay. I'm going to test your skills. What is okay. Tamaka? Hey, Tamaka? Hey. It's like, uh, give it to me or something? No, imagine. Ah! <laughs> I've learned a new word. Okay, I'll test you. Okay. 
okay. I'm gonna give you basics. <laughs> Tiga na wana. What a fala. Hey! Let me test you another one. Um, Horera. Horera, go. I, I know, Tiga Horera. Yeah. Yeah, stop crying. Yeah. So Horera is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my, my mom doesn't know that he crew you. Okay, so Luo? Luo. Some, some basic cue, mm-hmm. and then you got European languages. Kiswahili, of course. Hey, yeah. you're swai, you're sanifu. Yeah. Swahili, I'm on basani. Ah, oh. see the ambie, see the t-shirt, see the t-meshe. So, nakimanya, nakimanya. So, nakimanya. So, like, lugaangu, yo, man. Then you go to Europe. Osongo, yawa, kisongo. Dinglis. You say English. Dongere. Tukondani. My Dutch is not shaky. I do therapy in Dutch. I have been working on Spanish like a dog. You know, like a dog. So let me just say, I'm not yet fluent, but I'm getting to kind of basic mm. plus. There is another language you speak from the Kenyan coast. Giriyama. Yes. Hey. Hey. So you speak seven <laughs> languages. Let's just say, my Giriyama is sketchy sketchy. My Giriyama is tough kupate. Because of growing up in coast, and when we were hanging up with our friends, and they slang in Giriyama. All the time, Zalam Kazi, you know, like, good morning, or Sindadzi, you know, like, how is your day been? Or Simanyawi, things like that. Mm. You have to, you have to know, like, otherwise... You can't really survive in coast growing up as a child. That's like growing up in Molo. You really have to know basic Kikui words. Even if you don't speak them, you have to understand what they're saying. Kikui is Sheng. Growing up in Nairobi, for example, if you yeah. didn't speak Kikui or didn't, didn't understand, your bike would be taken, your shoes would be gone, your pig word. Yeah, you just had to be able to kind of like hack it and knock it. Mm. But then my dad didn't like the idea of speaking Kikui in the house because he was saying, I'm a Luo. Mm. And when we were kids, my Luo wasn't that good. Sketchy, but my queen was fluent, so he was furious. He'd be like, How come you speak queen in my house? I mean, don't speak Luo. This is wrong. Mm. This is wrong. So he banned us from speaking Kuk in the house. What would we do if we want to talk about it? I don't want, I don't want him to nyita. Kikuyu. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> my dad would be annoyed. So there's a person listening who is a young, upcoming individual, has dreams of making it in different things, but is a little bit confused because people always give advice and say, focus on one thing and you can't do all these things. You can't start to dream of a life outside of Kenya. First, build your life here, da-da-da-da. What advice would you give to somebody listening and just kind of confused, but you want to give them advice on how to stay on their path and not give up on any of their dreams. What advice would you give them? First and foremost is like, be true to yourself because people will tell you all sorts of different things. People will judge your journey. People will have an opinion about what you're doing and they will never stop having an opinion. Mm. The most effective thing is to finding the core of what you're doing and finding the core of yourself. Even if you want to do a hundred things, Find the core of those things. Like, what is the one thing among all these things that pulls it all together? For me, what's saving psychology? Psychology helped me look behind the curtains among all these things. And it helps me approach these things in a different way. And also, among all those things you're trying to do and achieve, pick one, finish it. Be good at it. And let it help you to scaffold the other things that you're trying to do so that you can combine them. So you have a constellation of ideas. So you only don't see the world as a scientist, but you see the world as an artist. 
But you have to become one of those things, first of all. Either become an artist already, and then go to science, or become a scientist, and then approach the world from the scientist approach to becoming an artist. So you become a scientist, artist, or artist, scientist, but they have to be a becoming. The Messiah has to become before salvation comes. Find your Messiah. Your Messiah is a core, true, one thing that makes you you, and then adds everything else around it, like the planets and the universe. Mm. That's good advice. 2024 is right, you know, at the doorstep. What are your feelings and sentiments about the new year? Number one, I really want to keep my eyes, my heart, and my mind open for any new beautiful energy that might come, Mm -hmm. might change things. And uh, number two, I I would really like to kind of sell uh, the collection that I made this year and spend next year to sell the clothing and the music and really kind of like push it and share it. Mm -hmm. The Schwarzenegger way that you taught me, Yes. you know, (laughs) really, really like kind of take time to promote it, talk about it, speak to people and take it to places and stuff. Mm -hmm. And also prepare ground for the year after next year where we want to hopefully do our third collection, Mm -hmm. which is going to be about protagonism because the previous collection was about masculinity. And uh, this time we want to look at what people actually care about. People are always fighting for something. There's something on this planet that means a lot to you, that means the most to you. Yeah. What is it? That's what we want to actually kind of bring out in the third collection. But before yeah. that, we want to sell masculinity, promote our music, and stay open for this nice new wave in 2024. When you know mm-hmm. post-corona, we were told to contain ourselves. But now we're practicing actually to open up again mm. and be receptive to, to new energies and new learning. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve Biko. You are an absolutely amazing human being, individual and friend. And I just want to thank you so much for everything. Like from the first day I met you, you always gave me that same beautiful energy, vibe, openness, you know, ready to host, ready to embrace, ready to love, ready to roll, ready to discover And I just really love that of your personality. I feel like you're one person who, if somebody gets to know you and they become your friend or family, you stick with that person to the long end. Like someone can depend on you. I can depend on you. You are one of those very trustworthy individuals. And it's a true quality to have. People always change. And we always say this, and I'm sure even in psychology, you know, go through this from time to time that, even when people get together in friendships or relationships, after several years or things, people change. But I feel like you're one person who, yes, does change, but in, the, in, in many ways, you're still the person you were in many ways. And I think it's just the heart. And wow. I love it. I love your heart. Wow. I love everything you do and how you do it. You entertain me so much. Sometimes I'm just listening to you or, you know, seeing you serve or pour a drink and it's just the way you pour the drink it's the personality it's the way you came out at your show at your fashion show and you're jamming you're wow. dancing and i just loved it you know you don't do things the traditional way you do things the steve Biko way that is a massive compliment it is so huge <laughs> i had a bug for the compliment you get 20 compliments <laughs> But now I need a bigger bag because this one is full. So I'm going to find like a special bigger bag to put that big compliment in there. And I'm keeping it with the rest of their lives. And thank you for being you. And continue being yourself. I'm sure there are many days when you might not be having a good day. But I'm so glad that you make 
our days and that you're just that beaming light in the midst of our lives. So I appreciate you 100%. And I'm sure somebody was listening today and has appreciated to hear from you. I loved the part where you said even living in Europe is not perfect. You know, let's be honest about it. So I love that. You know, I love the honest truth yeah. that you always speak. So thank you so much. Thanks to you because if it wasn't for you, this wouldn't be possible. I remember when I met you as a young lady in Nairobi, working for the BBC, doing grapevine. It's just an incredibly beautiful speech. And a young person was driven. The way you smile. I don't know many people smile like you. Like you, <laughs> when you smile, the room lights up. Really? You know, like this light. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful. And you've stayed the same person. You've grown, but it's wonderful to kind of sit here with you today and look back in the days when we were in Nairobi, walking, hustling, feeling. You yeah. know, Alliance Francaise, yeah. Owasani, and now we are here. And I'm thinking, like, wow, wow, the years have gone by. And you've been part of my PR journey because I remember hustling you at Capital for interviews. And then at some point they put you on the late night show. So you only had to talk to people on the phone at night. Hello, this is Team Bigo. And you're not really doing interviews, but you were always really great. You know, when we'd call you and say, hey, could you interview an artist? You were always so happy even to say I'm unable because of the format of my show. But you always picked up. And yeah. I think that's a very great quality that you have. That's why I say the openness. So if you can't do something, you'll say, hey, I can't do it. If you can't do it, you'll say, I can't do it. A lot of people, they don't want to say yes or no. So they're you know, giving different signs and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been really amazing. And this has really been an amazing episode. I've enjoyed it. Those listening, thank you so much for always coming to VIP Access. As I told you when we were starting off, this is episode 17 of season three. This is our final, final episode of 2023. It's a bonus. We're coming to you from Mallorca, Spain with the amazing Steve Biko. We want to wish you a happy new year. Definitely. Have a great new year. What are happy, you doing, guys? Happy. Let's do it one more time. Okay. First of all, merry, 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 Christmas. I said I'm a Christmas person. So, hey, Merry Christmas. And number two, there's one person I want to give flowers to. He's passed away already. And this is the man who actually gave me the biggest opportunity in media in Kenya, Chris Kiruli. Okay. I want to give him the flowers now and say thank you. Just to end this. Ah, wasikilizaji, wapendo, wapendo wasikilizaji. Tunawashukuru sana. Wakutusikiliza leo hapa VIP Accessa Niko, wakona Steve Biko, na kutakia kila laheri, kianza mwaka mpia, mruke salama, osikunye sana, kidogo kidogo tu. And it's been amazing, it's been a really great year, so no complaints over here. I think VIP Access is just scaling up from here. We have an amazing new season that is going to launch 2024 January, so look out for that. We're on all the social media channels. Please follow us on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter. Obviously, we have the YouTube videos on YouTube. And it's been so amazing to see this community that has, you know, come together to follow VIP Access to discover different creatives and artists. Keep doing amazing things and hope you'll keep supporting. So thank you so much. And see you in January. Happy New Year. Biko, we didn't even talk about your music. Ebu, where can they find your music? UEP is uh, called Mantra. A mantra is about love. And I think, really, we've spoken about love in a very big way in this interview. We have. 
So the music is about love and who we are. Yes. You can find it on Spotify, Deezer, YouTube, and all those other platforms. Yeah. Uh, let's just say groove to it and, uh, and share it. All right. Bye, guys. See you next week. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.